Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. I'm Sabriel and today I am joined as always by Ken. Hey Ken. Hello Sabriel, how are you? I'm doing fantastic yourself. I am already into withdrawal from no more Star Trek Discovery until January. I know, right? This is absurd. Two and a half months when I'm used to having like instant gratification. Well, again, it reminds me of The Best of Both Worlds, which I just finished watching a month after seeing the first part, and it reminds me of back when we have to wait four months for the thrilling oh. conclusion. God, the past was the worst. Oh, let's not go back there. <laughs> let's go back to the future. Time travel never works out well. <laughs> uh, this week we are talking about Season 1, Episode 9, Into the Forest I Go. Sounds like a Little Red Riding Hood episode. <laughs> the title does. I wish I could find the thread, but someone said it, it is actually from either a poem or a book. The title. I'm not surprised, but I'm also wondering where this episode came from, because we were originally supposed to get eight episodes in the first half of the season, then we got nine without adding to the total number of episodes. Do you think this was supposed to be the beginning of the second half of the season? It definitely seems that way, the way they were talking, and I'm glad they finished with this, because the Pavo episode did not really feel like it had that, that oomph that it needed to be the season finale, or half-season finale. Yeah, if they had ended the first half-season with that, I don't know that a lot of people would have tuned back in, because it just didn't have enough of a hook to grip you and make you want to find out what happened. Yeah, exactly. But this week, well, this week is a completely different story in multiple ways. <laughs> That's for dang uh, <laughs> self-censor. <laughs> language, language. Do I really have to be Captain America here? Come on. <laughs> All right. So this week's episode begins in orbit over Pavo. Uh, Lorca is having a discussion with the uh, Vulcan ambassador, admiral named Terrell. I finally found his name. They're like, "Hey, uh, you failed your mission. We're gonna, just gonna have you come back over here to Starbase. We're gonna have you and a bunch of other Starfleet ships come back." And uh, get in defensive position, and we're going to figure out this cloak, since you failed your mission. Yeah, unlike the previous communications he's had with this Vulcan Admiral, which were in his ready room, this one is happening right on the bridge, in front of everybody. Yeah, there's like no chance to mince words here. Yeah, also Lorca can't misrepresent his superior, kind of like Burnham tried to do in the second episode of the series. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you and I disagreed on whether or not the Admiral's decision made sense. They are asking Discovery, the fleet's most valuable ship, to withdraw from a potential confrontation, whereas Lorca is saying that he wants to protect the Parvins, a planet that they thought was uninhabited, which they now found out is. They have violated General Order 1 by interfering with a sub-warp culture. I think that Starfleet, in order to be Starfleet and stand up to their values, should have protected the species that they brought into harm's way. Oh, see, that, that's a, that, that I hear more of your description or uh, your analysis. Uh, I can see where you're going with that. When we wrote in our notes, I was like, no, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just your tendency to be disagreeable. That's true. That's true. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, I can see that where, you know, Starfleet usually like defend at all costs kind of thing, but I still say they're in a 
wartime situation and to pull all your ships back uh, is a very defensive maneuver and a lot of times honestly means like you are in a bad position you are on the losing end and I think this is Starfleet's like crap we are running out of options and we need all our ships back at home if the planet that they had just come from were uninhabited and all it had was that crystalline structure that they could have used for war purposes, then I would agree they should abandon that mission, that potential asset, and withdraw. But there are lives at stake here. And it's also possible other ships couldn't get here in time other than Discovery. And it was a clear loss then to them. Yeah, Discovery is often the only ship that can get anywhere. For some reason, I don't know. Go figure. It's because they're such fun guys. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so Lorca is like, fine, dude, whatever. And the Admiral had said, we want you to jump back to base. And Lorca's like, eh, once they cut the comm, he's like, uh, set warp. We're going to go there the slow way. It's going to take us three hours. And all the crew was like, but Captain, the planet. And he's like, I got this. We're just going to warp back because it's slower. And that gives you three hours to solve this invisibility shield problem that no one's been able to solve for months. Get to it. First of all, I love the idea of Lorca signing off with the Admiral by saying, yeah, dude, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to see that. Second of all, I was surprised that they had three hours to spare because they could already detect an incoming Klingon warp signature, specifically the Ship of the Dead. I'm surprised that they had sensors that could detect it at warp three hours away. Yeah, Star Star Trek has been kind of... Uh, whenever our long-range sensors need to reach this range, uh, we do it for plot purposes. Well, that's convenient. Yeah, and this is is definitely a case of that. So they need a reason why they're using regular warp instead of spore warp, and so Lorca sends Stamets down a sickbay to say, hey, you've been not feeling great. We really technically shouldn't use you, right? Lorca doesn't actually know that. You look pale, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Which is... Wait, are you, I'm sorry, are you making a purposeful joke about him being pale? No. Okay. I didn't what, even think... <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that, because the actor's Twitter handle is like albino guy. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, he would be looking a little pale. <laughs> no, unintentional joke. Okay. Uh, sorry. No worries. Mr. Rob. So what happens next? And uh, Stamets is like, yeah, okay, but are you sure we really need to do this? doesn't really explain why. He's just like... Uh, kind of nervous about getting all tested. Well, Samus doesn't really want to get tested because he knows something actually is wrong, which Lorca yeah. does not know, and he doesn't want to reveal that, especially to Culber. Right. Yeah. Oh, oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, so then we cut ahead to an hour later. Discovery is at warp. We get to see the cool uh, warp effect in Discovery. We actually do not get to see very often. <laughs> it's true. They're so often sporing around the universe that we don't see traditional warp. And so we're on Discovery, and the crew is scienting the heck out of the problem, and they figured out that they need to put sensors on the Ship of the Dead. And the problem is, once they get there and get the sensors are there, it would take days to get the data they need, and they do not have that long. And also, the only way to place the sensors is to beam a crew over. Exactly. And... What? <laughs> Which I thought was sort of a catch-22, because if you know where the ship is long enough to beam aboard, then you don't need the sensors to find out where it is. But then they indicate that there's only a narrow window while the ship is uncloaking, but before the shields come up, when they can beam somebody aboard. And then the shields will come back down when the ship recloaks, and they can beam their team back aboard. So I'm wondering, how come in less than three hours of warp, 
the Discovery crew were able to formulate this plan, when we have been at war with the Klingon for six months and their cloaking technology is not entirely new and nobody back at Starfleet headquarters in the research or science divisions were able to figure this out? Yeah, that is a little weird, but uh, maybe the benefit of in-the-field research is useful, maybe? And also Discovery is a originally a science vessel, so maybe they have some of the best and brightest minds. Yeah. Hand wave. <laughs> but there were so many alternative venues. And also, the fact that they have figured out a way, even though it's a desperate one, to detect cloaked ships that we've never seen in any other future iteration of Star Trek seems questionable to me. See, that's a possibility there. I put it in the notes, like, apparently the Klingons use a gravitational field for their cloak. We know in the future, at least Romulans use some kind of a tachyon. Who's a what's-it? to do their cloaking, so it's different tech. Oh. Now, see, in the novels, I think the Klingons actually bought their cloaking technology from the Romulans. Yeah, that, that's that's what happened, but uh, that's that's later technology. This is from the ancient Klingon ship, cloaking tech. I see. So this technology may have proven to be so inconsistent and susceptible to infiltration that they eventually abandoned it and replaced it with a purchase from the Romulans. Yeah. Okay, I can see that. That makes sense. I guess we also assume that the cloaking tech came from the... I mean, maybe the uh, Takuvma bought it from the Ferengi or something. I guess we don't really know for sure where the Ship of the Dead got the cloaking device. But uh, <laughs> It's true. Takuvma himself, I don't know if he was a scientific genius. I don't know where he got it from. I don't think he invented it. Yeah. I think all he did was find the beacon and light it. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> Some things we just don't know. There are so many things we don't know, Bree. Yeah, there are a lot of things we don't know. We need to discover them. I want to know everything. I know, I know. I want to be like Ildris Alba in Thor Ragnarok. I just want to be able to see everything. I gotta see that still. Uh, you totally I'm should. I'm going tonight. Excellent. We'll ha- we'll do th- that. Will be next week's podcast. Yes. However, this week we are still now we're going to the medical bay. Indeed. Yeah, Culper discovers that there is actually a problem with Stamets that uh yeah Stamets was not telling him about. Yeah, Lorca comes down to sickbay for a report, and Culber says, you wanted to find an issue with Stamets? Well, you got all that and more. And it has to do with his white matter, which is an actual thing, not to be confused with, like, dark matter, which is an episode of Voyager. This is white matter. Yeah, I honestly apparently do not know much about the brain's inner workings. Nobody does, Bree. Yeah, I know. And And especially when it comes to yours. <laughs> oh. It's true. It's funny because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm fond of your brain. <laughs> so I actually looked it up. Uh, white matter has to do with, uh, it affects your learning and brain functions. It's a very simplified version of it. but uh, So it's actually a real thing. I was happy to see. Yeah, as opposed to just more hand-wavy things. Technobabble, yeah. Right, neurobabble. <laughs> Lorca's like, hey, this you're still cool? And Stamets lies and he says he has not experienced any side effects. Yeah, and he has a look on his face that is very pain. Like, not only is he unhappy about having been outed, but I kind of thought that maybe he had told Culber the truth, and they were both hiding it from Lorca, because I can't imagine keeping something like that from your partner. Yeah, it's there's tough times, I guess. He, I mean, he was fighting this inner dialogue what, last week, two weeks ago? Last week, yeah, with Tilly. Yeah. And he's kind of hurting him. And, I mean, Stamets always has this pouty concern look on his face but this is like when you can tell that this is a separate pouty concern face you know it's a big deal to him yeah i would say he has three primary expressions he is condescending he is high as a kite or he is pained 
Yeah. <laughs> so that's Stamets in a nutshell. So far. We've been kind of bouncing around, but the episode's actually going kind of quickly. Yes. Which is kind of cool. <laughs> like, hey, more story, let's get going. <laughs> because there is literally a lot of jumping around in this episode, as we're about Hi-oh. to discover. <laughs> yeah, so Lorca pulls Stamets back into the captain's ready room, which, by the way, very important to note, the captain's ready room does not have any chairs. No, he always stands. Yeah, very, very different from anything else we've ever seen. And I just thought that choice in interior decorating was worth noting. <laughs> you know, maybe he uses the Situation Room as a ready room. No, because that's an Enterprise thing, because they didn't have a mess hall or an observation lounge. I, I don't know, but I, I think the fact that the standing desk trend has extended to 200 years into the future is fantastic. Yeah, if he has a treadmill on there, we'll know. <laughs> it's awesome. Got to get his steps in on his super ultra-high Fitbit. <laughs> Yeah, Lorca brings Stamets into his ready room and says that the only way to get all the data from the Klingon ship without waiting days for all the signals to come in is to jump rapidly around the Klingon ship using the mushroom drive to be in a lot of different positions and get the telemetry from a lot of different angles. It'll require Stamets to power 133 mushroom jumps in rapid succession. Yeah, and he's, his reaction is, you want to do what? That's impossible. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Stamus is not having it. No, he's like, and Lorca's like, dude, you got this. You're a scientist. You came out here to do science stuff. And L- Stamus is like, you're right. I did come out here to do science stuff. And <laughs> that's the, the nitty gritty of it. That's not exactly what they said. Well, specifically, Lorca said, you came out here to go where no one has gone before. And we're all like, oh, you said it. You said the line. I mean, I think over the course of this series, they're eventually going to be having said the entire opening (laughs) dialogue to every Star Trek ever. I think you're right. And even these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Somehow it'll work in there. So they'll they'll bump into Captain Pike and they're like, so what is it that you're up to? And like, oh, these are the voyages. (laughs) Um, But tell us more about the map that Lorca shows Stamets. So, you know, you get Stamets to kind of a, he's like, Stamets, you want to do this. I'll show you why. And he pulls up this map that we've actually seen Lorca looking at multiple times throughout the series. But in the past, we always assumed it was him looking over just like general Starfleet maps, like, you know, battle maps or whatever. But he shows this map of space and Stamets immediately notices like, whoa, you've got like maps to different dimensions and realities on here. And he realizes that this is a map of all the jumps that they've taken. Yeah, it's interesting that Lorca would have this and that nobody in engineering would because Stamets is the one whose DNA technically has the maps to all these places, which allows them to pinpoint their trajectory precisely and actually jump to the place they want to go. And yet Lorca is the one who notices all these jumps add up to potential routes to parallel universes. And Stamets after that scene, he's like, all right, I'm in. I'm in like Flynn. Right, because Lorca dangles the carrot that says, if we can win this war, then the spore drive can be used to explore all these other places, and the mission will continue. The war is the only thing stopping us from boundless scientific discoveries, and that is all Samus needs to hear. I mean, I think that would work for me, too. It's true, but also this is suspicious to us viewers, because we suspect Lorca might actually be from another dimension. I don't know about that. Well, I guess there are some fan theories that we haven't really shared on this episode yet, but I was suspicious. Then they both walk out from the bridge, and they have a plan that they want to enact. Yeah, Lurker comes out and just says, Tyler, get a boarding party ready. And Tyler's like, all right, I call Burnham. That's right, she's on my team. 
<laughs> Dibs. And Lorca's like, no chance. Her safety is paramount. And she's like, but by not letting me go, you're not using the ship's resources to their full t- potential. Unless this is about me. And Lorca's like, oh, 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 uh, fine, go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so once again, we see Lorca being very protective and defensive about Burnham. Even though she's extremely capable, he is very concerned that something might happen to her and he will not put her in harm's way unless absolutely necessary, which is not a treatment he offers any other member of the crew. He will put Stamets in that warp room for 133 jumps, but let Burnham go to a Klingon ship? No way. Yeah, and we still don't know why he is being so protective of her. And Burnham didn't know either, and she called him out on it right there on the bridge. Uh-huh. Lorca is sitting in the captain's chair. Everybody, including those at the con, are turning around to watch this argument between them. And I was reminded very much of when Burnham argued with Captain Georgiou on the bridge of the Shenzhou, because she was saying, Captain, we need to fire first, blah, blah, blah. And Captain Georgiou said, we do not fire first. We are Starfleet. And Burnham didn't let it rest. She argued, and Georgiou said, in my ready room now, don't you ever question my orders on the bridge in front of the crew. You are welcome to give me counsel, but when I give orders, that is final. That is not a lesson that Burnham has learned yet. The difference here is that this time Burnham was calmly talking to Lorca, whereas on the Shenzhou, she was like, chewing out the captain saying no we really need to do this and yelling at her it is true that burnham was being much more logical and in control of her emotions in this episode she laid out arguments that were obviously not influenced by the klingons having murdered her parents in my opinion Mm -hmm. but it was still loud enough for everybody to see and watch and they were uncomfortable because Lorca's word is law and apparently she is setting a precedent for it not being so yeah and also interesting in this quick scene where where burnham is telling her like hey you know like doing all this Lurka looks at saru for a moment and then turns around and says okay and, and but saru doesn't give any kind of expression or motion he doesn't do a single thing so i don't know if it's for once Lurka's like what do i do or if it was just a happens this is what Lurka's looking nervous and just looking around do you think maybe Lurka was looking for backup because he knows that saru and burnham have a history and saru usually comes down on Lurka's side yeah, it's a possibility, or it could have just been a show Lorca just being uncomfortable. I don't know if there is any meaning to that, that clip or not. And we also don't really know what impact last week's episode has had on Saru. It never comes up in this episode. No, it's like it's almost entirely forgotten. I mean, this is within, this just happened a few in world, in universe hours ago. Yeah, I mean, Saru could have gone either way. He could have said, she's a traitor, she's not to be trusted, don't send her. Or he could have said, she stole all my peace from me, all she does is take from me. Send her to the Klingon ship, with any luck she'll get killed. Yeah, you know, that's all episode. Saru doesn't have really much of a part at all, other than later saying, I don't know what's going on. Right. (laughs) (laughs) After last week's episode of him having so much pain and suffering and having peace at last, this week is just all forgotten. But uh, we can talk about more of that later. Yeah, Saru was definitely the star of last week's episode, and he's relegated to basically random communications guy in this episode. Yeah, totally. So in the show, we ch- we jump ahead a few minutes. We're in engineering now, and Culber insists on being in there so he can watch over Stamets until he <laughs> sees that he's here. And he's, she's like, oh, and she says to Stamets, I'm so glad you finally told Culber about the side effects. And Stamets oh. gives her this look like, ugh. <laughs> Until he's like, oh, oh my gosh, you have it. I'm so sorry. I'm so- 
it's such a classic TV trope for it something is. to be blurted out like that. It is, especially Tilly of all people. Yeah. And Culber, but Culber, he gets a straight face. And he's like, "I'm sure the lieutenant has a good reason for not telling me." He's really angry, but he is also he he sticks to his duty. He understands people do things for reasons sometimes, and even if it hurts. That's interesting that you would say that Hugh Culber stuck to his duty because I felt like his response was more that of a partner and less oh, that totally. of a and less that of a doctor because if I was about to subject a patient to a dangerous procedure and at the last minute I find out that the patient has been experiencing medical symptoms that were previously unknown to me, I would call off the procedure. Oh, I think he knew the situation, gravity of the situation. Plus when he says the lieutenant instead of Paul, everyone knows they're a couple. And so this shows both his partnership and, or being a partner and being a Starfleet or crew member. <laughs> but that's what I mean. I think if he was actually being a Starfleet officer in this moment, he would have said, we are abandoning this course of action. I, don't, I think he saw that there's no other choice. Like Stamets isn't going to back down the captain. That's true. Isn't going to back down. Like, fine, we're just doing this. Whatever, man, we'll talk later. <laughs> and you are so in trouble. Yeah, so Stamets gets a cuff around his arm, not like a punch, but like an actual wristband that can administer medication. He goes into the warp room, and just before they start the jumps, Lorca addresses the crew over the PA and says, When we started all this, you were all polite scientists. Now you are fierce warriors. And what do you think the response to that was? This was weird to me, because the crew, especially even Detmer, uh, who's got the side shape, which I love her, she has all this happy look on her face, and I'm like... What? This doesn't seem right. I don't know why the the crew seemed happy to hear this. Yeah, we're fierce warriors. And then maybe when you're at war, things are different. But at the beginning of this adventure, they were all like, but we're scientists. We're not used to getting our hands dirty. And now they're like, yeah, we're warriors. Yeah, I mean, if there was a clear evolution from one role to the other, like when you started this journey, you were cabin boys. When you returned, you were cabin men, you know, <laughs> then sure, I could see them being proud of that. But instead, it's a lateral transition. You were scientists. Now you're warriors. And if I heard that said to me, I'd be like, God damn it! I lost my goal. This is not my vision. This is not what I want to be doing. I mean, Stamets was mad that at Burnham for basically saying the war you started has stolen my research from me and made it into a weapon of war. This is not something to be happy about. Yeah. So maybe because this show, we're only on episode nine, we just kind of missed and jumped over a huge like development thing or whatever. It just didn't feel right to me and that might be just a production thing or maybe the crew just accepts that whether or not we want to be scientists or warriors we are nonetheless in a state of war and what this situation calls for is what we have become also possible it just felt weird to me i agree no i i felt weird to me as well well discovery is at warp uh, the klingon ship arrived in orbit of pavo so discovery at warp uses the spore drive which is something i didn't know i didn't even think about it was kind of neat yeah, that seems dangerous if you combine two different kinds of warp. Yeah, but, you know, I'm not a uh, warp, warp theorist, so maybe it's cool. But wouldn't they come out of the mushroom warp still at warp? Like, they oh, ap- right. they appear in orbit over the planet Pavo and immediately warp away? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. But, yeah, it did, like, whoa. <laughs> anyway, uh, then we cut to Discovery pops back in right in front of the Ship of the Dead, and we pop to... A quick scene on the Klingon ship where Cole's like, they're here. Starfleet sent their most prized possession to fight us. Rawr, we're going to win. Rawr, rawr, we're going to take over their ship. Rawr. And then they decloak. And that's when Burnham and Tyler beam over with devices that, that Tyler's like, 
He has this... Burnham and Tyler are beaming over and Tyler says, a little exposition, these devices are going to mask our human life signs. And then they beam over. And then immediately, Burnham's like, these devices that are on will mask our <laughs> life signs. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, which basically means that if any... in Internal sensors on the ship of the dead detect them, they will show up as Klingon life signs, which A, is incredibly useful, and B, is something we've never seen before, and I could think of a lot of episodes of Star Trek where that would have been useful. Yeah, that was um, technology that had somehow forgotten. <laughs> yeah, very limited use. Maybe it, there's a reason. Uh, we can get technobabble reasons. Yeah, but, but, but once they are beamed over, the Ship of the Dead raises its shields and Discovery engages in battle tactics. Discovery actually does this neat move where, in Star Trek, traditionally, ships are basically viewed as in the ocean, uh, visually. The way they move is very slow and aerodynamical. Ships even have like aerodynamics that don't really matter in space all that much. And not that there's anything wrong with that, it looks cool, but we actually see Discovery make these weird movements in space that uh, totally throw all that, that out and say, hey, no, we don't need to do those weird water and space movements of a ship, so we're just going to move at weird angles, and it totally works. So I thought it was kind of cool to see that. Yeah, the only ships I've seen move that swiftly and elegantly in space before were the Defiant from Deep Space Nine mm -hmm. and the holographic impersonator ship in the fourth season of Enterprise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that thing was a drone that was being remote controlled. So that might explain why it was so nimble is because it didn't require tactile input from an onboard crew. Absolutely. So I thought it was just a neat effect. Uh, something that would go under the radar of probably most people, but being long-time Trek watchers and viewers, something neat. Yeah, so we have Burnham and Tyler on the Klingon ship. They have these little signals that they need to put down, one on the bridge and one somewhere else. So they immediately head into a little unused closet and put down one of the sensors and immediately very loudly says sensor now online and communicating with discovery awaiting input from second signal and i'm like what <laughs> yeah i mean way to be stealthy yeah like why is this computer not quiet <laughs> honestly i mean is not a visual readout sufficient in this case yeah before the show starts they should have said please remember to silent all your sensors they just forgot <laughs> And so while they're on their way to the bridge, they detect another human life sign. They're not aware of any POWs on that ship, but Burnham says that she needs to bring everybody home. She can't leave anybody behind. Yeah. <laughs> Tyler's like, we've got to stick to the mission. She's like, no. He's like, okay. For once, he doesn't pull rank. Yes, that's true. <laughs> He's, well, he does say, you've got one minute. <laughs> he, that's true. He does say, if we can't break into that room where they're being held within a minute, then it's back to the mission. Yeah. And he actually chimes in and says, well, if you're slowly trying to break in, maybe I can quickly do it, because I was a prisoner here for several months. So he is not unsupportive of the desire to bring everybody home. Right. Now, who did you think the other human was when they detected that signal? Because they don't know who it is. I knew instantly it's Cornwell. Like, we didn't think she was dead last week. Right. I mean, and that makes perfect sense, because that's the only other human we've seen interacting with Klingons face to face. And it was just last week, as you said, and you and I discussed whether or not she was dead, and neither of us really thought she was. And yet, despite all that overwhelming evidence, I had kind of forgotten about her already. Oh. <laughs> and part of me thought, what would happen if they find this other human, and it's Tyler Ash? Oh, yeah, yeah. 
because we are suspecting that the Tyler Ash we've been seeing is not real. And there was a similar scenario, I'm trying to avoid spoilers, with another crewman on Deep Space Nine, where they thought they had the actual person on crew, and then they go into a prison ship and they find the actual person who they didn't know had been substituted. If it's 20 years, is it really a spoiler? Yes, because I know somebody who is currently watching DS9 for the first time. And they, and they do listen to the show. That's right. All right. Okay. Then for you, I will say nothing. <laughs> Before we go any further, there's something we should say. Yeah, uh, we want to give a trigger warning to the next uh, quick little scene uh, for torture and PTSD inducement. Normally, we would say jump ahead like to two, three minutes in, but this is going to be a recurring theme for the next several scenes, including not only torture and PTSD, but also sexual assault. Just a heads up that we will be discussing those things in the context of how they happen in Star Trek Discovery on the remainder of this episode of Transporter Lock. So the two get into the room. They immediately see Cornwell laying on the ground. Burnham goes and checks on her, and Tyler sees movement in the back of the room. He goes up. He's holding a phaser up, and who from the shadows comes up? But Laurel, his previous captor, and she's in. She's bound by uh, cuffs. And but she starts talking to him, and he goes into shock. He has he starts going to flashbacks of the torture that she inflicted upon him, and he is unable to do anything. He stands there, gun pointing at her, and she's continuing to talk to him. After a moment, Michael sees this, turns around, and stuns her, and helps him snap partially out of it for a moment. Yeah, I was really afraid that Tyler was going to kill her. I don't know if that would have been a good or bad thing, but since she technically saved Cornwell's life, I thought it, that she might be on our side and Cornwell would have to say, no, don't hurt her, she's helping us. I completely missed that Laurel was handcuffed, but you're oh, right, yeah. because last week her deception was detected by Cole and he had her physically dragged away. So he must have figured out that Cornwell was still alive, didn't do anything to change that, and then just threw them both in the brig, basically. Yeah, apparently they're going to deal with that later. During the flashbacks, this is actually a scene where I think many of us, including me, started wondering, are we going to see Laurel turning Voke into Ash Tyler? And that did not happen in those flashbacks. I was I cut through pictures. No, it was just her torturing him. Yeah, this was very violent, and it made me wonder if Tyler really was Voke, which is a popular fan theory, because I don't know that you can fake memories that horrible. And I don't know that she would have done that to him if he actually was Voak. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's still possible. It, it did not take away the possibility of that hypothesis, but... Right. Uh, yeah, so, so Burnham helps uh, kind of comfort Ash as best she can, plops him against next to Cornwell. Cornwell can't move. Her legs are unable to... Uh, she can't feel her legs. We don't know why yet, but... Um, so. Bur or Michael Burnham leaves them there. She's going to go put the sensor on the bridge, the other sensor. And she gets there. She does her hot thing. She's very secretive. And she activates it. And this thing is like, access to discovery established, like yelling it out. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I know. Again, fortunately, nobody notices. So maybe it was like in whisper mode. Yeah. <laughs> Why is this? But she was. Hit the mute button. Seriously. <laughs> All right. So now that the second sensor is online, the Discovery can start getting the telemetry they need, and they need to give the Klingons a reason to recloak, which is how the information will be gathered. So Discovery says, let's show them that we are dangerouser than they thought, 
and they start using the spore drive to reappear and disappear on at all different aspects of the ship and fire photon torpedoes from unexpected angles so that the ship of the dead is getting pummeled. I thought it was like a quick speedy jump the first time I watched this, but it is a little slower. I mentioned that for a reason. We'll get to it in a second. And but it, it works. It cool. It uh, torpe- It's a cool effect. Seeing Discovery just pop in, drop torpedoes, pop out. Keep doing this. But at the same time, I wonder if they really needed the mushroom drive to do that because ships are capable of going to warp for short distances, as we saw with the Picard maneuver. Yeah. So eh, we got this cool toy. Might as well use it. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. And then they're just about to actually start their snapshot. Uh, basically, their 3D 3D picture of the ship. Right, because the Klingon ship has now recloaked. They're like, oh, so this is the Discovery's special power. Well, we will hide until they run out. Yeah. <laughs> the suckers. <laughs> and uh, we, just before the plan is enacted, we get this quick quick shot of Stamets looking at Culber from within the chamber saying, I love you. And Culber says... Culber does not say, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and Culber says, I know, just like Star Wars. It was such no. a great callback. No. It was a really sweet moment, Ken. <laughs> Well, so it was in Star Wars 2. Oh, no, no, it's not Star Wars 2. Star Wars also. <laughs> there was nothing good about Star Wars 2. The love in that movie was dead as a rock. <laughs> My God. Damn it, says the Culver, I love you. And then immediately... That's right. They start doing those 133 jumps. Yeah, our 3D picture of the Klingon ship, invisible Klingon ship. Right, because they don't need the Klingon ship to continuously recloak and uncloak or cloak and decloak or whatever. Like I originally understood the plan to be, they just needed to cloak once, and as long as it is cloaked, they can get those gravitational readings. Yeah, you know what? I realized part of the problem of the plan, I realized this later, was they just got to hope to God the Klingon ship does not go anywhere. Right. <laughs> and also, if the Klingon ship doesn't go anywhere, then they know where it is because they yeah. just saw it. Can't they just fire photon torpedoes at its last known location? I mean, that's what I would be thinking if I was the Klingon ship. Uh, Discovery had their own plan, like, hey, it worked out. <laughs> yeah, and also the information that they're gathering hopefully can be used against other Klingon ships as well. Uh, we get a quick cutaway to the Klingon ship, and Cornwell is trying, she's a psychiatrist, and she actually is trying to talk Ash Tyler through his shock, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, she tells him to breathe in, breathe out. I like that that is her specialty and that not every admiral comes up from engineering or military, that you actually have some mental health professionals at the utmost ranks of Starfleet. Yeah, and it was a very quick scene, but hey, I, I liked it. No, I agree. Uh, things, however, are also not going well for Stamets. He may not have PTSD, but he is enduring a lot of jumps. And Culber is right outside the chamber asking if he's okay, and Stamets opens his eyes, and looks at Culber, and without any context says, there's a clearing in the forest. That's how they go. That makes no sense. No, and as I said, I think the title, Into the Forest I Go, is a book or a poem? I cannot find a quick access while we're trying to record here. And when you try to search for that quote, it just talks about Star Trek. Of course. It's just strange, though, because we know that Stamets can see a lot of different things when he's jumping, maybe different dimensions, maybe different timelines. And so I don't know ex- specifically what he's talking about. Yeah, it's like the mushroom forest, maybe? The spore, you know, the whole mycelium thing. I don't know. But a forest of mushrooms? I don't think that's the right term, is it? Mushroom forest. I think it's a murder or a kill. And also, we just saw a forest last week when Saru was down on the planet's surface, but that's not what they're talking about this week. 
At this point, Culver pleads with Lorca to stop. He's seeing his partner in so much pain right in front of him. Right. And Lorca's like, no, keep him alive. We got to do this. They're only halfway through the 133 jumps, not even halfway. Culber, it's like, all right, arg. And he just gives a boatload of digoxin. Digoxin? Yes. Uh, to stamens, which is also another thing that's not technobabble. And it's a drug used in heart treatments. Yes, that is an actual medication, and it sounds similar to an anti-altitude medication that I've, I'm also aware of. So I think that is just something to help with heart rate and breathing. So, hey, more, more not technobabble, real, real-world stuff, so hey. Yay, reality. <laughs> but that's the end of the scene. We see the injecting in the, in the little graphic of the levels going up. And... So now we cut back to the Klingon ship, not to Cornwell and Tyler, but actually to the bridge where Cole, he sees the Discovery bouncing all around, and he says this must be part of a plot. This is not just a random act to distract or entertain us, so let's get out of here. And Burnham realizes, oh, no, that can't happen because we don't have all the telemetry we need yet. So she fires at the Klingons, and then she comes out. She has her hands up after having just fired at them. She hands up. She's got a universal, or she's got a communicator, which has a universal translator in it. And, oh, because this thing, he, he, the Cole heard someone yelling Klingon. But she's speaking English to us. And actually have a cool effect where... You can hear it happening at the same time of the device talking while she's talking. It's really kind of cool because we don't actually ever get to see that in Star Trek other than uh, to the, or Star Trek Beyond. And it's also a technology that we have nowadays. I mean, Google Translate as an app can actually do exactly that. Yeah, so it's really cool. So she comes out here and shows the Universal Translator. And she's like, this is just technology. It's cool. Uh, we're all about peace. And he's like, no. I see that as a way to erase our cultural identity. Whoa. Damn, that's a good point. I never before. <laughs> Cole is a social justice warrior. Yeah, it never occurred to me that this device that happened that helps cultures communicate with each other would erase a little bit of identity because you're not speaking their language. Like, wow. Yeah, you don't need to learn or adapt to their culture. You don't need to learn the beautiful intricacies of a foreign tongue. You can just speak your own crude English and out comes whatever it is that you're trying to say to the other person. Yeah, now I feel so naive. I'm, not, I'm never catching that before. I'm going to start boycotting Google Translate. <laughs> I'll boycott Universal Translators. <laughs> Yay, down with UT. Yeah, they have dialogue and Brenham's like, what honor is there in stealing sh- the ship coal? He's like, how do you know that? And she's like, I was here. <laughs> That's right. She outs herself as Takuvma's slayer. And Cole realizes that if I bring you back alive, or maybe even dead, then all the remaining houses will have no choice but to fall behind me because they will see that I am the great unifier. I am the one who brings vengeance to the houses that the Federation has wronged. Burnham at this point, as, as he's like, lock her away. And she's like, no, I challenge you to a fight. And he's like, challenge accepted. And <laughs> yeah, he could see that the discovery jumping all around was part of a ruse, a distraction, but he can't see that when it's right in front of him. Yeah, uh, apparently in the moment kind of guy. Yeah, and while this is all happening, Burnham isn't the only one about to be under assault. There are some Klingons that are trying to storm where Cornwell and Tyler are because they have identified that there is some sort of a sensor there. And this is when Tyler finally snaps 
a little bit out of his stupor. He is thinking now not about the torture, but Cornwell has said, if we don't do something, Burnham is going to get killed. And he starts thinking about when he kissed Burnham on the planet's surface last week. And that's the incentive he needs to pick up a phaser and defend himself and Cornwell. It's, it's, there's nothing more to say. Yeah, he snaps out of it when he thinks of Burnham and grabs the nearest uh, disruptor and starts blasting away at the Klingons. I mean, I don't know how realistic that is. I've never had to deal with or witness PTSD. I don't know if you could just tell somebody, think happy thoughts and you'll get out of it. I don't want to be condescending or simple-minded and suggesting right. that's all you need to do. But at least in this case, it worked. I just don't know if that's a realistic representation of that condition. I don't know either. And it was kind of, I don't know if she ever did tell him to think happy thoughts. His mind almost seems to wander to that moment. And then the final um, moment that helps him snap, at least temporarily out of it, is a Klingon pointing a disruptor at him. And also Cornwall doesn't know that Tyler and Burnham have a thing going on. Right. So. You know, I did think it was interesting when Burnham identified herself to Cornwell, because Cornwell, even though they may have never met, Cornwell knows very well who this mutineer is, and she doesn't say anything like, oh, well, we're all dead now, or, oh, Lorca sent the mutineer. She doesn't say anything. She just says, state the nature of your mission, specialist. <laughs> and, you know, she treats her like a professional and also realizes that you're my only hope out of here. Yeah. Okay, so, back on the discovery. Yeah, the jumps... Uh... I mean, it's a really cool effect. I'm kind of understating the cool effect of seeing the Discovery going bouncing all around. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> but they, they finish all the jumps that they need. And they stop. And they're like, uh, why isn't the Klingon ship moving? Well, oh, well, this is going to buy it. And we're just going to analyze our data now so we can figure out the problem. Yeah, five minutes to analyze all the data. Yeah, so that means, that means for five minutes, Burnham was fighting hand-to-hand with the Klingon, with Cole. Like, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that she was able to hold her own. Like, we don't know what sort of combat train she has. We we saw her fight with Sarek a little bit before, but not really much with hand-to-hand weapons. They, they, do, they do basically a jump. Five minutes later, uh, data is analyzed, and they're like, all right, beam Tyler and Cornwell back. And they do that. And as Tyler and Cornwell are beaming, Laurel, like, jumps onto Tyler from behind. She's accidentally taken away. I don't know if she was intending to do this or if she was trying to get him. I'm not sure. I'm thinking she knows how transporters work, so I think she was trying to get away. This is her escape. She was trying to escape last week. Yeah, it's hard to say exactly what her intention is, but I would agree that she wanted to get caught in the transporter beam. Yeah. So while they beam you away, Burnham thinks she got a communication over the radio saying, hey, we're beaming you back. And she's in her mind, she's like, all right, time to cool. have a cool dramatic exit. <laughs> I know, right? She jumps over a ledge, and as she's in midair, she beams away, and Cole's like, ah! And she was falling back first, so she's looking back at Cole so she can look him in the eye just as she's fading away. And also, one thing we didn't mention is that just before she transports out, she grabs Captain Georgiou's, not comm badge, but uh, Starfleet insignia from Cole, who's been using it as a toothpick. Yeah, yeah. He was taunting her with it earlier. We didn't really mention it, but yeah. It's like, good on her. Yeah, I mean, she can't bring back anything else of Georgiou's, but she can at least bring back that. Yes, yeah, so they are back on the Discovery. Tyler and Burnham go back up to the ship. Lorca is just about ready to give the order to fire, but first he takes out that little injector that he uses on his eyes and uses them because he knows he is about to witness a dramatic change <laughs> in light exposure. <laughs> it took me a second to figure that out. I just thought, like, oh, he has to do this every hour, and he happens to have to do it right now. But no, he says fire 
all these photon torpedoes cascade into the unshielded but cloaked ship of the dead and it just explodes for a long beautiful moment yeah it, like this happens like just as tyler or and burnham walk on the bridge tyler's behind her and all of a sudden you like a huge huge explosion on the view screen at the same time lark is doing his cool walk away from the explosion thing <laughs> yep, just like boom goes the dynamite. He just dropped the mic and walked away. Yep, but uh, honestly, he didn't seem excited about this at all. And I don't know if it was just him having his stern disposition. I can't imagine any Starfleet captain in this situation would pump their fist in the air and say yes. Well, I mean, Data maybe. But... Well, th that's true. That actually did happen once. <laughs> it seemed kind of like a really weird reaction. It didn't, or even to watch, or even just turn away because you know bright lights for him. But he just walked away and went to his ready room. While it was going on. On to the next mission, I guess. No sense wasting time Maybe here. All business, but I don't know. And this also explains why when Burnham killed Takuvma way back in the second episode, she was beamed out before she could grab Georgie's body. When she was beamed out this week, I thought she was going to say, no, not yet. I need to kill Cole. This is the leader of the war. And yet she was happy to get beamed out. I didn't understand why. The reason is because the entire ship is now dead, including Cole. And she knew that was going to happen. So it took me a second to figure that out, but it makes sense. Also, in a slow scene where the ship is exploding... Like I mentioned earlier, Tyler was behind Burnham when it came on the bridge. And when we cut ahead, or cut, cut, back to that, cut back to them a moment later, Burnham stands alone. Yeah, and she turns around and is like, hey, where'd my friend go? And there's nothing, nothing is said here, really, just, uh, and it cuts away. But she notices that he's gone. Yeah, it was in the background that he snuck out, and I didn't notice it at first because it was in the background. So when she turned around, I was like, well, wait a minute, where did Tyler go? But then I rewatched it, and I'm like, oh, he just went down the turbo lift. Yeah. At some undisclosed amount of time after this has happened, Lorca is in his ready room on the phone with the Vulcan Admiral, who says that Admiral Cornwell is now safe, undergoing surgery, and will expect a full recovery. So she will not be paralyzed from the waist down like she was in this episode. Um, more Klingon ships are on the move. They're about to launch an attack, but the data that was collected from the Ship of the Dead is being distributed throughout all of Starfleet, which is great. And as thanks for doing all of this, for destroying the ship, destroying coal, and gathering this data... And ignoring orders. Exactly. In, <laughs> in order for disobeying a direct order from a superior and putting the ship of the line into a precarious situation where all could have been lost and subjecting your chief engineer to near-fatal medical conditions, we are awarding you the Legion of Honor. <laughs> like, what? What? I mean, you cannot assess the wisdom of a decision by the results. And, you know, this is something I learned in my undergraduate psychology class. Like, let's say that I go to the casino and I put my life savings on black on the roulette wheel. Whether or not the ball now lands on black, that is a bad decision. The wisdom of that decision does not change based on the result. And Lorca made a bad decision. Yeah, it was a little weird. But, I mean, and they're like, all right, we were about to lose this thing and now we have a fighting chance. Uh, oh, well. Yeah. Lorca could have at least pretended that he was, like, going through a tunnel and didn't get the message to come <laughs> back at the very beginning. But the fact that he instituted that three-hour warp back to Starbase 46 and then mushroomed back to Parva, that is obviously 
you know, I mean, he wanted to have a cover for why they were using regular warp instead of mushroom warp, and that is valid, but there's no excuse he can give for going back to the planet. So that was ridiculous. The very next scene, there is something that I think a lot of people missed. It shows Burnham stepping out of the turbo lift on some deck of crew quarters. She's making her way to Tyler's room, but just as she steps out of the turbo lift, did you hear what came over the PA? I heard that, and I, I honestly heard a different name. I heard Detmer, like uh, the one on the bridge. But, oh. But on the second hearing, I did hear what you heard. Yeah, so it's possible. That makes more sense, actually, now that you mentioned it. That had occurred to me that the intercom said, uh, Cadet Detmer, please report to the ready room. But she's not a cadet. So if it's more without your hypothesis. Yeah, so the rank doesn't match, although it does make sense that there is somebody with that name. What I heard was Cadet Decker uh, report to the ready room. And there is a Decker who shows up in the Doomsday Machine episode of the original series 10 years later, and then again in Star Trek One, the motion picture. So, and I mean, those two characters are father and son, so this could easily be probably the son. Very, very possibly. Or as a very, very fast-track admiral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 10 years later, cadet to admiral. Only Tilly should move that fast. <laughs> but yeah, Burnham goes into Tyler's office to talk to him, says, I, hey, I happen to notice you had a little meltdown when you saw Laurel. Who is she to you? And Tyler just goes on and on and says, she was my torturer. She put me through so much out of 277 days in captivity. It was... It was awful. It's, she's the reason I have nightmares every night. She's also the only reason I'm alive right now as opposed to being killed like most Klingon prisoners were. Yeah, he adds that he decided he needed to make a choice to try to survive. And that was um, to give in to her um, sexual advances. And so he feels a little guilty for making his decision to subject himself to this instead of just killing himself, but he felt he had to do what he needed to do to survive. And so he did survive, and he says that if going through all that allows him to find peace with Burnham, who's sitting there now with him, then it's all worth it. Yeah, he's like, this, this is weird, isn't it? And she's like, no, it's okay. And she's glad they're together now. They hold hands and kiss. And earlier in the scene, Burnham even tells him she envies his ability to pretend nothing is wrong. I mean, she was trained with Vulcans on how to suppress emotions, and she's like, dude, <laughs> you can put a Vulcan to shame with this. But I am glad to see these emotions finally coming out from Tyler, because we've okay. been talking about how so many Discovery crew people are going right back into the line of duty after being subjected to trauma. Uh -huh. And now we see that this trauma, they can pretend it didn't happen, but it's still there, and eventually it's going to surface, and it has to be something that they deal with. Yeah. And so, yeah, it just took a number of episodes that we finally got them, we finally get to see them dealing with the trouble. And I like seeing Burnham comfort him in this way. Like, he is in crisis, even in this moment, and she is there for him. Despite being a romantic partner, she's not there to romance him. And that's, again, very realistic. It's something I've seen a lot of in the past year, and it's something that's very important and very realistic. Yeah. All right, so we cut away to the shuttle bay where Stamets is watching sunrise over Pavo. Just alone. No one else is there. Lorca comes in, shares a moment with him for a moment, and tells him that he w Lorca's like, they were going to give me the Legion of Honor medal, but I told them to give it to you. I was like, oh, <laughs> like, yeah, like the sacrifices he made is way more than what Lorca did. And so it seems to fit. Then Lorca's like, all right, we're 
we're just gonna go take warp back to the starbase. And, but he's kind of... He's so evil in this scene. Uh, <laughs> he's like, alright, we're just gonna take warp. It's no big deal. And Stamus is like, I'll do it one more time. I'll do the spore thing one more time. And Lorca's like, but no, you you don't need... No, no. I would never ask that of you. No, no. Like, you're, no. And <laughs> like, totally playing him. <laughs> and Stamets is like, no, no, no. I want to do this, but literally last time we're ever doing this. I need to get back to the real world and have a bunch of scientists figure out what in the world has happened to me these last few months. Yeah, now he wants to be subjected to a full medical exam and figure out what is happening. Yeah. And Lorca's like, all right, since you insist... <laughs> I'll let you do one more jump. Yeah, and he's like, we've all but ended the war and are about to start a new chapter. The second half of season one. <laughs> yeah, this is actually very much a... Uh, <laughs> um, this is what's gonna, This is uh, foreshadowing. I mean, it does seem like the Klingon War should essentially be over at this point, and I was wondering if that was going to be the entire arc for Discovery, because they, before the show premiered, had said that Discovery will address an aspect of Starfleet history that has been mentioned but never examined, and I thought I thought that would be the basis for the entire show, and I'm kind of glad it's not, because I feel like I got my fill of war with the Dominion War. Same here, yeah. To end this scene, I think a lot of us were thinking, like, all right, things are kind of peaceful. Maybe things won't go wrong. But then when you look at the stream, you're like, oh, there's still 15 more minutes. Something's got to go <laughs> I know. There were a lot of points in the episode where I'm like, shouldn't that be the end of the episode? Oh, we still have a lot of time to go. Yeah, so now we are back in Tyler's quarters. We see Tyler having nightmares. It's, again, a trigger warning, which we mentioned before. Uh, we see him being sexually assaulted in various uh, angles. Not, none of it too graphic, but still more graphic than you would expect from an episode of Star Trek. Images are so graphic that it wakes him up in the middle of the night, and he looks over and sees Burnham, and it takes me a second to figure out the context. She is not lying in bed next to him. She is lying on the couch. She is just there to comfort him, kind of like Spike was for Buffy in Season 7. So this was not a physically intimate moment for them. This was an emotionally intimate. She, this was her saying, I will stay here so that you know you're safe. Yeah. Which I thought was, again, very realistic and moving. Right. But Tyler, he's awake now, and he's, he flies out of his quarters, goes down to the brig where Laurel is imprisoned. Again, when she first saw him on the Klingon ship, she's like, it's you. And now she's, again, very moved by his appearance. He wants to know, what did you do to me? But she says, don't worry, I will never let them hurt you. Which is a strange thing to say to somebody who you have tortured. Yeah, and he's on his hands and knees at this point. I mean, this seems like the behavior of an abusive lover who thinks it's their responsibility solely to be the abuser and that nobody else can touch them. I don't know what she's getting at here. But then the ship starts to go into black alert. He starts to leave and she says, soon. I, we don't know what's going to happen soon, but I think she's trying to say... Like, soon I will awaken you to your true self? Yeah, I... We don't know. This is what we all suspect. Yeah. We don't know. But now we move to the final scene. Yeah, we're in engineering. Stamets and Culver share a kiss. Like, oh. <laughs> An on-duty public display of affection. So yeah. unprofessional. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> and Stamets uh, says, like, you know, on a moon next uh, near, nearby uh, Starbase 46 where we're going. He's like, I hear there's a... Cassilian Opera House, and they're running uh, La Boheme, 
when this is this is we know this from a few episodes ago with the the Mary Mud episode that this is where the play that or um this is the opera that Culber was whistling a tune from and st- when Stamets first met him and and so he's offering to go on a date to this, this opera where he, apparently he hates <laughs> and to see an opera that was later adapted to the Broadway musical Rent yeah which also Anthony Rapp was in as well as Culber what was I, I, yeah I didn't um. I couldn't see what he did in that show. I don't think I don't think they were in it simultaneously. I don't oh, think yeah, this okay. is a previous collaboration, but you know, when a show runs out long, cast members cycle in and out. I suppose. I suppose. But I thought it was kind of a cool little nod to maybe unintentional, but I don't know. There was a lot of very much intentional dialogue in a lot of the series, so. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah. While they're setting up to do the spore drive again, we kind of head to the bridge real quick. Lorca's fiddling with the uh, panel on his captain's chair, and. Going through, and he sets the destination to unknown. He does his override. Yeah, he punches in some navigational coordinates, but they don't seem to be necessarily recognized by the Discovery. But he seems to have indicated that they are going to... I mean, there's every reason why he might be inputting the coordinates for Starbase 46, but that also doesn't seem like the captain's job. He's not the navigator. No, it's Stetler's job. So Stamets goes into the chamber, he connects to the warp drive... And this has never been a comfortable occasion for him, but this time he is screaming in pain, and the inside of the chamber ices over. Yeah, and so the, like the ship comes out of warp, and they're not where they expected to be, unlike the series finale of Voyager. In fact, Tilly says the computer reads it as an incomplete navigation. Saru is running around trying to figure out what's going on. They seem to be in some sort of a debris field of other ships that have been destroyed. He can't identify it. He basically says, Captain, I have no idea where we are. And Stamets, this was a little scary for me. Uh, Culber says, Stamets is crashing. He has stumbled out of the chamber and is flat on his back. And his vitals are crashing, which is very scary. And uh, Stamets' eyes are completely white. And he says, so many. I can see them all. Infinite permutations. It's magnificent. And again, we don't know what he might be talking about, except possibly parallel universes. Yeah, that's the only thing we can really guess. Yeah, but that's all we have to go on. Nobody seems to know where they are. The ships are unrecognizable, the ones that they are floating around. There seems to be red paint on them, almost like the Reavers from Firefly. Firefly, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, we're in the Firefly universe. That would be an amazing crossover. Oh, my God. (laughs) I would love that so much. Indeed. Uh, And that's it. That's the finale. The show is over. The series is, the first half of the first season is done. Yeah, I'm glad this was our ending and not the last episode. Yeah. So we have a lot of thoughts here. We want to share a few of them, but we're also going to be back next week where we're going to be talking about all the stuff that we think is unaddressed in the first half of the first season. And we'll be taking your questions, more on that in a moment. But first, what are some of your thoughts about this episode, Bree? Oh my goodness. Well, first we got the same first same-sex male kiss on screen the romantic kiss anyway because we had a same-sex female kiss in ds9 right yeah yeah awesome i thought it was interesting that tos was groundbreaking for having supposedly the first interracial kiss on tv and here we had another interracial kiss set 10 years before tos and it was same gender oh yeah i didn't catch the interracial part there because it was just apparently my, my mind is normal that's normal now well exactly i no, i I feel a little bit racist that I even did notice it. But in the context of Star Trek, yeah. you know, especially where this is sort of in the same era as TOS, 
you're right. As far as TV centers go nowadays, this was nothing. And as far as being like even the same male, same gender kiss for men, that's been done umpteen times on TV. It's the first time it's happened in Star Trek. Yeah, I, I really didn't blink an eye the first time I, right, the first saw it, time I saw it. I was like, of course they're going to kiss. They're partners. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 well, as we're talking here, I realized we like gave no emotions after the series just or the show episode just ended like my reaction when the episode ended was oh my god what i know like my first reaction was a text i sent that said what just happened oh my god because i don't know where they ended up i don't know how this is going to tie into all this technology that we've never seen in any other star trek before i don't know if time travel is going to be involved i don't know what universe they ended up in and technically i am not entirely sure what universe they started in that possibly could not have been the prime universe no well no no you mean in the discovery is in prime do we absolutely 100 percent know that they said that was who's they the showrunners. Okay. Because I I can imagine a world where it is in a very adjacent universe where things are very similar. But that would explain why the Klingons look so different and why they have a mushroom drive and all these other things. Oh, no, no. We're in a prime universe. Okay. Prime universe, too. Those who may not know are uh, original. Everything that's not the mo- uh, reboot movies. Okay. All right. Anyone who doesn't know. Yeah, I so yeah, I thought this was a great episode. It was a great episode to end the first half of the season on. I thought it was a great cliffhanger to leave us wanting more. Uh, I really, really liked this episode. It had realistic depictions of war and the consequences of it. It had some pretty good hand-to-hand battle choreography. It had some dramatic entrances and exits. It had a great space battle scene, uh, especially with, as you said, the Discovery jumping all around the Ship of the Dead, especially when it was firing photon torpedoes, as opposed to just collecting telemetry. Well, I love this episode. It didn't really feel like it concluded the Pavo one, like the previous episode. Like, we had this entire episode, the Pavo one, last episode, basically just felt like the dedicated to get coal and Discovery in the same area. I mean, we got to... I think the Saru parts and the Saru development... Saru's development was amazing. I loved it. But it just seems like, all right, Pavo's done. I'm like, we have three more Klingon ships that were on the way to Pavo, and Discovery's like, eh. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting that even though we've had two two two-parters so far in the first nine episodes, none of them have ever been labeled part one and part two. Also true. We just kind of called it the same, you know, part one and two, but... But you're otherwise correct that other than the episodes taking place immediately after the previous week, they're extremely disconnected. Also, this episode had a cold open between last week's recap and the opening title sequence, so this is the first episode of Discovery to do that in three weeks. Yeah, yeah. Ever since episode six. Also, Stamets, I mentioned him a few times that he's had totally pure black eyes a few times, and here we see him white, which uh, we brought up already, but this, this uh, seeing him white reminded me of the Anar on Enterprise. So this is season four of Enterprise? Yeah, the Anar are a subrace of... Um, the Andorians, yeah. yeah. And uh, they have, they, a lot, uh, not all of them, but some cannot see, and they speak telepathically or see telepathically to communicate with each other. And so... I thought that I mean it may maybe unrelated completely because there's lots of effects that could glaze over someone's eyes like that, but it just reminded me of that. Maybe it's a hint of things to come. Oh, and the chamber did freeze over. 
Andorians live on a cold planet. So where are you going with this? Are you saying that Stamets is Andorian? No, I'm saying maybe some kind of relation <laughs> to the, what happened here and the Anar. Yeah, I mean, the ANR do have some limited ability to interface directly with ships and pilot them, similar to Stamets. I don't know where the tardigrade comes in. Maybe that's sort of like the missing link between the two, but... Yeah, I don't... Yeah, I mean, the ANR themselves were were technically introduced on the animated series, which is not canon, and it was actually a mistake that they were introduced at all, <laughs> which they then made canon on Enterprise. Yeah, like, go Enterprise. What did you think about the Barge of the Dead in this episode? Yeah, so uh, I wrote in our notes, I had caps like, Barge of the Dead! Uh, because at one point, Tyler just says the, uh, the Ship of the Dead, and my brain goes, bing! I don't know why I did not ever, ever, ever think of this before. The Barge of the Dead in Klingon mythology brings the souls of Klingon warriors to Stovacor. They call this thing the Ship of the Dead. This makes me wonder if either the Barge of the Dead in current Klingon mythos is about this ancient ship of the dead that we see right now. Because it's a really old, old, old ship. And so I'm wondering if the mythology built up around that, because the ship of the dead is a sarcophagus ship. It has dead bodies all over it, you know, like, as its armor. And so either it's a... the barge of the dead is a mythos around this ship, or ancient Klingons tried to make their own version of the barge of the dead. So you're questioning whether Cole's ship inspired the myth or whether it was inspired by the myth yeah i just i I was more surprised like i never put these two things together at all until one moment in this episode every time we get listener feedback it's always about sabriel knows so much about star trek and she can just pull facts out of nowhere because she remembers everything and how did you miss this (laughs) i have not seen a single other person mention this so everybody it's usually in private emails to me where it really hurts Thanks. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Mike. <laughs> so those are my thoughts this week. Basically, the A&R thing, Barge of the Dead, and oh, my final, final thing. This morning, I tried to unsubscribe from CBS All Access because I don't need it for two months because uh, episodes did not resume until, ja- until January. And when I tried to unsubscribe, uh, maybe it will give us to everybody, but it tried to give me a 50% off voucher for the next two months. And when I tried to decline the offer and just hit unsubscribe, the window would refuse to advance. It refused to close this little pop-up and would not let me unsubscribe. So I had to try from a different computer. Well, good luck with that. (laughs) Thank you. So basically to let anyone know, you might get a voucher if you can even unsubscribe. (laughs) Yeah, if you're paying by the month, that is true. I paid for a full year, so there's no point in me canceling now. Gotcha. If you are, for some reason, still listening to Transporter Lock and have not subscribed to CBS All Access, I don't know how you're watching Star Trek Discovery, but you're welcome to by going to transporterlock.com slash CBS, and that will get you a free week of service during which you can binge the entire nine episodes of Discovery and be caught up to where we are on Transporter Lock. Yeah, do it. You've got <laughs> two months. Well, you could, but you have to do it in a week, so get to That's it. right. Thanksgiving weekend. You can squeeze two months into a week, yeah. Yeah. In the meantime, we are going to continue airing Transporter Lock, even though there are no new episodes of Star Trek Discovery for another couple of months. We have a lot of fun things that we're going to be filling the time with. I think we're going to have a coloring book session. That's right. Adult coloring. Yes, we love that. And then uh, karaoke. Indeed. (laughs) Trekioki. 
the first thing we're going to be doing is inviting your questions. If anybody listening to this show or on Twitter or Reddit wants to submit a question about something that you feel is unanswered so far in Star Trek Discovery, like how did they do this or why did that happen or where are they going to go with this or what did she mean by that? We are welcome to receive your questions, and we'll be talking about them on next week's episode and thanking the individual who submitted the question. So we're not looking for reviews or opinions. We are wanting to know what aspects of discovery should we theorize about and try to come up with a solution for. I mean, if you want to leave a review on iTunes, more power to you. Sure. You can submit a question either by emailing podcast at transporterlock.com, or if you wish to do so anonymously, you can submit an email via the contact form on our website, transporterlock.com, or you can leave a review also on that website where you just click the little iTunes icon or go to transporterlock.com slash iTunes and leave a review, which not only boosts our egos, but also feeds into the iTunes algorithm that allows other people to discover this podcast. Yeah, I could use some more ego boosting, so uh, hop to it. I thought that was my job. <laughs> More. Oh, my God. I don't think your head can get any bigger, Bree. <laughs> well, let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do that because we have nothing else to do. So if anybody wants to chime in, we're happy to hear from you. And in the meantime, feel free to review the episodes of Star Trek or of Transporter Lock that have aired to date. And we'll be back next week with more fun stuff and in a couple of months with more episode recaps and reviews. All right. Well, I guess that's it for Transporter Lock. And you know, Ken, I think one of these days we should actually come up with a way to sign off. Yeah, other than the podcast blowing up? Yeah, yeah. One of these days. We'll work on that. We'll take that feedback as well. So leave us a note. And in the meantime... See you next time. (laughs) Live long and prosper. Goodbye. I don't know. Adios. (laughs) Signing off. What's Klingon for goodbye? Um, There is no word. Just you're dead. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. Oh, boobs! The first time I read this text, I thought you wrote boots. Uh, what the hell? <laughs> I was like, who wears their boots when they're having sex? I guess that's a thing, but... Military people. Sorry.